And would you please take the Bible, your Bible, and turn with me to Acts chapter 14. We have been following Paul and Barnabas on their first missionary journey. They were sent out by the church in Antioch in Syria. And it was there that the Holy Spirit said, Now separate to me Barnabas and Saul for the work which I have called them. And then having fasted and prayed, they laid hands on these men and they sent them away. They traveled a relatively long distance in that day up into Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey. The Lord was with them, and He blessed their work, and blessed their work with many converts, many who heard the Gospel and believed on the Lord Jesus Christ and were saved. They were also met with many persecutions along the way as well. We come this morning to verses 19 through 28. Would you please follow along as I read? Then Jews from Antioch and Iconium came there, and having persuaded the multitudes, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing him to be dead. However, when the disciples gathered around him, he rose up and went into the city, and the next day he departed with Barnabas to Derbe. And when he had preached the gospel to that city and made many disciples, they returned to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, exhorting them to continue in the faith and saying, we must through many tribulations enter the kingdom of God. So when they had appointed elders in every city and prayed with fasting, they commended them to the Lord in whom they had believed. And after they had passed through Pisidia, they came to Pamphylia. Now, when they had reached, when they had preached the word in Perga, they went down to Italia. And from there they sailed to Antioch where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work which they had completed. Now, when they had come and gathered the church together, they reported all that God had done with them and that he had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. So they stayed there a long time with the disciples. Now, in our last study, we left these pioneer missionaries in the city of Lystra, where they had been preaching the gospel. And it was there also where Paul healed a man who was crippled from birth. This man had never walked in his entire life. And yet Paul fixed his eyes upon him and said with a loud voice, Stand up straight on your feet. And he leaped and walked. The Lord, you see, was bearing witness to the word of His grace. What these men were preaching, they were preaching the word of God, the gospel. And he was bearing witness through this sign that this is true. This can be believed. Uh, These aren't just some uh, slick 
men going out preaching and trying to get money or some other thing. This is the genuine article. They are preaching the word of God. However, we saw that the crowd misunderstood this sign altogether. And when they had seen what Paul had done, they raised their voices and cried out, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. They thought that Paul and Barnabas were gods. Their gods, in fact, the Greek gods. They even assigned them names. Each one, Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul Hermes. The disciples did everything they could to restrain them from offering sacrifices to them. They ran out into the crowd. They tore their clothes. They said, we also are men with the same nature as you and preach to you that you should turn from these useless things to the living God who made heaven and earth, the sea and all things that are in them. And still, Luke tells us, they could barely restrain them. They still wanted to offer sacrifices to them. They still saw them as deities, as gods. But this didn't last for long, though. Things are about to change. And what we see changing, we see, first of all, that Paul is stoned. He is pelted with stones until they think he's dead. And so we read in verse 19, that the Jews from Antioch and Iconium came there. These are the two cities Paul and Barnabas had previously visited. In Antioch, we're told in chapter 13, if you just look back there in verse 44, that on the next Sabbath day, this was the second Sabbath, they were there, almost the whole city came together to hear the Word of God. That's a wonderful thing. They were in the synagogues and What they heard in the synagogues, they wanted them to come back and preach again. And it says the whole city came out to hear them. But in verse 45, it says, but when the Jews saw the multitudes, they were filled with envy and contradicting and blaspheming. They opposed the things spoken by Paul. And then we read as they they moved on in verse 50, uh, when they moved on to uh uh, the, the next city, uh, 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 let's say Antioch, and then um, excuse me, yes, Iconium. When they came to Iconium, in verse fifty, it, it says uh, in verse fifty, it says, "But the Jews stirred up the devout and prominent women and the chief men of the city, and they raised up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and expelled them from their region." Now, this is when they moved on to Iconium, where virtually the same thing happened, except this time we find in verse 5, there was a violent attempt was made by both Gentiles and Jews with their rulers to abuse and stone them. The word of this plot got back to Paul and Barnabas. So it says they, they fled to Lystra. And that's when we come to verse 19, the Jews from Antioch and Iconium came there. We'll see this happening again and again throughout the book of Acts where the enemies of the gospel actually follow the missionaries to the next city to persecute them there as well. Even the word persecution has the idea of pursuing or hunting down. And that's what they were doing. 
and they traveled and they had traveled a great distance to find them, uh, to hunt them down. Uh, Guy Waters says they're positively evangelical in their hostility to the gospel. <laughs> they're like evangelists. They're like these missionaries are going everywhere preaching. They were following these men because they hated the gospel so much. You can see their hatred of the light of the gospel and their determination to put it out. And you see how, just like unbelievers everywhere, they're so tolerant of many things, but not tolerant of the truth. They would rather these idol-worshipping pagans, these Gentile pagans, continue blindly following their cunningly devised fables rather than to turn and to believe the good news that these men were preaching. That the true and living God has sent His only begotten Son into the world to save sinners. And that He died upon the cross, the just for the unjust, that He might bring us to God. And on the third day, God raised Him from the dead. And that this Savior has ascended to the right hand of God. And He is now even making intercession for the saints according to the will of God. Well, these men, these Jews from Antioch and Iconium, came to Lystra. What did they do? Well, it says in verse 19, And having persuaded the multitudes, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city. So they persuaded these Gentiles to let's kill Paul. (laughs) They persuaded them. Isn't that an amazing thing? Here they are. One minute, they're praising these men, worshiping them as gods and wanting to sacrifice to them. And the next, they're ready to stone them. How fickle men are and how quickly they change. We see that in our own day. Everywhere we look, we see men changing everywhere, doing things, saying things that they never would have said just a few years ago. One moment these men are hailing Paul and Barnabas as gods, ready to sacrifice to them. And the next, they stoned him and dragged him out of the city and left him, supposing that he were dead. But these Jews persuaded them. How how cunning. How easily men are persuaded. How easily they can change. I've heard recently of of a certain... uh, scientists and all touting the development of the technology and the AI and all that, uh, that they, they, they just ridicule the whole idea of free will. There's no longer a free will, they said, or there won't be, because this AI will be able to predict with such accuracy what you're going to do that they can actually manipulate you to do anything they want to do. Well, this is 2,000 years ago, <laughs> and they still could do the same thing. Men could persuade men to do things that they ought not to do. And yet men are that way and they are fickle. And that's why the Bible tells us not to trust in men in whom there is no help, but to trust in the living God. Well, you look at what they did, these, uh, uh, what they did to the Lord Jesus Christ. Didn't they change on a dime just like that? Early in His ministry... He had a great multitude of people following him. He had fed the 5,000 and they were following him, crossing the, the Sea of Galilee, wanting to be with Christ and follow him. And it seems like by the end of the day, it 
says they turned and walked with him no more. What a change. At the end of his earthly ministry, when Jesus came riding into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey, we're told that this great multitude followed him into the city and another great multitude came out of the city with palm branches in their hands, giving him a royal welcome. And they cried out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Only a few days later, they would be crying something quite different. They'd be crying, crucify him, crucify him. You remember when Pilate offered to them to uh, allow, as was his tradition, to uh, release one of the prisoners during the feast. And he set before them a notorious criminal, Barabbas, and the Lord Jesus Christ and says, which one shall I release? And the one they cried out was, give us Barabbas. What a change. What a change. Even the Apostle Peter, one of the chosen twelve, he said that even though all the others would forsake me, I will never forsake you. And yet, as we know, before the rooster crowed, just as the Lord said, he denied him three times. Men are fickle. Well, Luke says that they stoned him. They they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city. What a terrible, terrible way to die. I never read in the Bible or hear of stoning without thinking of R.G. Lee's graphic description of the stoning of Naboth and the story of Naboth's vineyard in the Old Testament. In his sermon, Payday Someday, he describes how these bloody butchers dragged this good man out from among the folks, out along the street, outside the wall of the town, and they hurled his body to the ground. And they picked up stones they had gathered beforehand for his killing, and they threw them at him, and threw them at him until his head was crushed, like an egg beneath a giant's heel. His feet and legs were broken into fragments. His arms were all broken to pieces. His chest was all crushed in, and bones stuck out of his body like ivory fingers of paint from pots of red paint. Blood splattered, brains scattered, and with convulsive jerks of his body and groans coming from between his broken jaws, Naboth, the good man, became very still. He's dead. Something like this happened to the Apostle Paul. God's lily beaten to earth by the hailstones of hell. Now this, I'm sure, is not completely accurate about Paul's stoning, but it, it at least gives you some idea of the horror of the act. Regardless, however he looked, when they finished with him, they thought he was dead. And so they dragged him out. No one could survive that, so they left him outside the city for the buzzards to get and the wild animals to tear into pieces. But we see in the second place not only a stoning, but we see Paul's resilience and courage. We read in verses 20 and 21, However, when the disciples had gathered around him, he rose up and went into the city. And the next day he departed with Barnabas to Derbe. Gordon Keddy said the sheer resilience of Christian evangelists is one of the wonders of the New Testament period and remains so to this day. This almost supernatural resilience. The disciples had gathered around him what looked like his dead, lifeless body. Some questions asked, was he really dead? Maybe he was raised from the dead. 
I think Luke would have told us if he was raised from the dead. It just said, supposing he was dead. His enemies thought he was dead. He looked like he was dead. He should have been dead. It says he rose up and went into the city. Imagine watching him. Paul's gone. And then he opens his eyes. (laughs) And then he gets up. Then they go on into the city. Back into the city. Back into the city where they just stoned him. What courage. Henry Martin said, I am immortal until God's work for me to do is done. Well, he was immortal. No matter what they could do to him, he could not die, would not die, because God wouldn't let him die. The Apostle Paul speaks of this in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 8, speaking of all the, the trials and difficulties he had gone through in his ministry. And he says, we are hard pressed on every side, but not crushed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. He gets back up. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, Paul's writing to Timothy, and many believe that Timothy was right here and saw all of this happen. Because he tells him in 2 Timothy chapter 3, he says, You have carefully followed my doctrine, manner of life, purpose, faith, long-suffering, love, perseverance, persecutions, afflictions, what, what, which happened to me in Antioch and Iconium and at Lystra, what persecutions I endured. He's speaking of this event right here. But he says these words, he says, And out of them all the Lord delivered me. He stood up because God delivered him. God was with his servant. It was the Lord who strengthened him. I say the resilience of Paul, but really it was the Lord strengthening this man. Now, he was a tough person, no question, and that was in his DNA, but God had done that as well. Everything about him was from the Lord's working in him. In verse 21, it says he goes right back to doing the work which God called him to do, which was to preach the gospel. Notice it says in verse 21, and when they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra. They're in Derby now. That's about, uh, I understand, about 60 miles away. But uh, when they had preached the gospel to that city and made many disciples, they returned to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch. So he goes right back to doing what God called him to do. Now, if you ever think there was a time when you might reflect and say, you know, maybe it's time. Maybe it's time to stop this. Maybe we've done enough. We've seen a lot of converts. Let's just leave and go back and we're fine. Well, he's resilient. He's courageous. And it was the Lord who had strengthened him. But then I want you to notice Paul, the pastor. And I'm saying Paul, but it's really Paul and Barnabas. But Paul, the pastor, we see that He had a true shepherd's heart. We see this in the fact that they're going to return now to Antioch. Back to the first Antioch from the church that sent them out. Antioch and Syria. On their return trip back to Antioch, what did they do? They revisited the cities where they preached. I can think of a number of reasons why you wouldn't want to do that. (laughs) 
all those bumps on his head and everywhere else and cuts and bruises. And that might be enough reasons right there not to go back to those places. But they go back. There's another reason they should go another way. Because the other way is a lot shorter. In fact, if you look on a map, you would see that from Lystra, they had a straight shot to his hometown of Tarsus. Where, and then down to Antioch, they would have a much shorter, more desirable route. It'd be safer. They wouldn't go back to the same cities that drove them out or persecuted them. But you see, they weren't thinking about themselves, were they? Who were they thinking about? They were thinking about all of those young believers in those cities where they had preached. You see, they didn't have the attitude of just, we're going to go preach and get saved and we'll see you in heaven one day. Have a good life. No, they were concerned about these new believers, these, these babes in Christ. They needed to be strengthened. They needed to be encouraged. They were like newborn babes. They needed to grow. And so he wants to go back to the same places where he preached and saw those converts. Notice that Luke refers to them here as disciples. He says in verse 22, they went back to, they returned to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples. They're strengthening the souls of the disciples. They're they're now called disciples. They're not just believers. Believers are disciples. This was the Great Commission. Jesus said, go into all the world and make disciples. Teaching them. You see, true believers are disciples. That is, they are learners in the school of Christ. They're learners. Missions and evangelism isn't only about getting people, quote, saved and on their way to heaven. No, these are disciples. Believing in Christ, you're becoming one of his disciples. You need to learn, and there's a lot to learn. Especially when you think of these pagans who didn't have the, 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 the benefit of special revelation. Yes, they had what all men have, natural revelation, but they didn't have the scriptures, the word of God. They needed to learn. They needed to grow. Strengthening the souls. They needed to grow spiritually, you see. God's design is for Christians to grow spiritually from babes to mature, solid, stable Christians. That's God's design. In fact, God's design when He saves someone is to bring them into conformity to the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, there's a long way to go from being a babe to being conformed to the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. But that's God's design, you see. They go to strengthen the souls of these disciples. How does he accomplish this? Well, first of all, they're to do this through the ministry of the Word of God. It says uh, in verse 22, strengthening the souls of the disciples exhorting them to continue in the faith 
saying we must through many tribulations enter the kingdom of God. You see, they're coming to exhort them. Now, they had no New Testament scriptures, but they did have the Old Testament. But even so, these apostles, Paul being an apostle of the Lord, was also a vehicle of special revelation. And he says we must through many tribulations enter the kingdom of God. Uh, the kingdom of God. In one sense, we understand that believers have already entered the kingdom of God. But here he says, through many tribulations, we shall enter the kingdom of God. Well, you see, there's another sense in which the kingdom of God has not yet come. The kingdom of God, in one sense, has come. Jesus said, behold, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's here. It's in your midst, he says. It's within you. It's a spiritual kingdom, the kingdom over which Christ reigns supreme. He reigns supreme in the hearts of men. And so when a person is born again, they enter into the kingdom of God. When they put their faith and their trust in Christ, they are in the kingdom of God. And yet there's another sense in which the kingdom of God has not yet come. Guy Waters in his commentary said, believers have not yet experienced the kingdom in its fullness. That will happen when Jesus Christ returns in glory at the end of the age. Until then, he says, it's through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. These tribulations are, are necessary. And, and he's explaining this. And here's how he's using the word of God to explain the things that he's talking about through much tribulation. Or we must, through many tribulations, enter the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God. In Second Timothy 3, after Paul tells Timothy, you followed my, my sufferings and all of this, my persecutions. You, you know all about me, my doctrine, my life, my persecutions. Uh, he goes on to say right after that, he says, yes, all who, who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. It's something that's necessary. He said, we must. It's, it's not just uh, one of those facts of life we will, but we must. It's not just that he observed everywhere when he was persecuted, therefore everyone must be persecuted as a Christian. Well, this is something that the Lord Jesus Christ himself taught. He said, men will hate you. They'll say all manner of evil against you falsely. They will persecute you. They'll put you out of the synagogue. And some of you they'll kill, he says. This was something that was necessary. Someone said that the problem with Christians today is that nobody wants to kill them anymore. Maybe that's why we're not persecuted. We're not doing enough for them to even want to persecute us. R.C. Sproul had an interesting comment about this. He said, we sing in the church about the faith of our fathers, which led them to dungeons, to death, and all sorts of peril. But we don't live in a place like that. <laughs> we have freedom of assembly in the United States. Is it because suddenly our country is more open to the proclamation of the gospel? Or is it because, in a very real sense, the church militant has become the church impotent? as we seek a safe way to experience our faith. In a sense, we have made a deal with the devil. 
we have agreed to practice our faith, as it were, on a reservation. That is, removed from the public square. We're told that as long as we keep our faith private and personal and do not intrude into the public arena, we will be able to exercise our First Amendment rights and the exercise of religion. We'll get our tax breaks and all of that. But maybe that's why we're not being persecuted. We've made this agreement. We've followed that adage, you know, faith is a personal thing. Keep it to yourself. Maybe that's why. But regardless, he says we must through many tribulations into the kingdom. It's necessary. But he teaches them also that these afflictions and trials are appointed by God. It's appointed by God for his own glory and for our eternal good. They're often brought on by wicked and ungodly men. And the devil, we know, is behind it all, these persecutions. The devil is spawning these things. He's the one who's inciting these things. But we know whatever the persecution, from whatever the source, whatever the tribulations might be from, they mean it for evil, but God means it for good. In fact, in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 6, Peter says, in this you greatly rejoice, though for now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials. Why? That the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found a praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Christ. You see, God is doing something here. I said his ultimate goal is to conform you to what? Not to this world, but to the image of his Son. And God uses things even like that to conform us. Even sufferings. They are appointed by God. They are many tribulations, he says. Many as well as varied. All don't experience the same thing. I've never had rocks thrown at me because I'm a Christian. I've had rocks and snowballs and things like that thrown at me for other reasons, but not for being a Christian. But they are many trials and they're varied trials. But one thing we ought to remember is that these afflictions and these trials are temporary. Temporary. You see, we will eventually enter the kingdom of God. He says, we must through many tribulations enter the kingdom of God. And here he's speaking of the, tribu- of the kingdom of God to come in its fullness. The consummation of all things. We will eventually enter that kingdom. In Romans 8, verse 18, Paul said, I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. God has something greater in store. In that day when we Enter that kingdom. There'll be no more sorrow, no more tears, no more persecutions. All that will be past. They'll enter into the joy of the Lord. Perfect peace. The Apostle Paul said in Second Corinthians chapter four, verse six, we do not lose heart. Even though our outward man is perishing, yet the inward man is being renewed day by day for our light affliction, he calls it. How can Paul called his afflictions light. Stoned to death. Have you ever been hit by a rock, kids? 
Maybe, maybe not. I hope not. We used to tell our kids, don't throw rocks. But it doesn't feel good. You imagine getting hit by big rocks. You imagine getting hit by rocks that are thrown so hard. Not just one, but many. What a terrible thing. As I mentioned earlier, it's a horrible way to die. But Paul says, our light affliction. Our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. While we do not look at the things that are seen, but the things which are not seen. We must, through many tribulations, enter the kingdom. That kingdom, no, we don't see, but we believe. Why do we believe? Because God's Word teaches us that. For the things which are seen are temporary, he says, and the things which are not seen are eternal. So that's the first means that Paul uses that God has ordained for the strengthening of the saints, that they would be strengthened by the word. They are exhorted. They are taught. There's so many things they need to go back to these churches and tell them and teach them. And then Paul would write letters to them so they would understand it better. And that they would have it in, in written form so they could go back to it again and again. You imagine as, after Paul had preached the gospel and they believed and they moved on. And they're just trying to remember when he said this. Oh, yes, you remember when he said that. And they're holding on to those little precious truths. Well, those are just a few in comparison to all the things they needed to know. And they go back and we need to instruct them and teach them. But the second means which God has ordained for their growth is a well-functioning church. Verse 23, And when they had appointed elders in every church and prayed with fasting, they commended them to the Lord in whom they had believed. So they're going back to these, what he calls now churches, because they're gathered believers. But now they need to be a well-functioning church. They need elders in every church. They were churches, but those churches needed shepherds. To watch over them, to lead them, to protect them, to feed them the word of God. In Acts chapter 20, Paul is leaving the church in Ephesus. He had spent quite some time there. And he's about to leave them and, and he's down by the river and he's got the elders there and he's exhorting them. And he says, take heed to yourself and to the, all the flock among whom the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Same thing as a pastor or elders. God has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. Paul says this, for I know, I know this. I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in into the church, not sparing the flock. They need a shepherd to protect them from these savage wolves, these Savage wolves are false teachers. Here in this place, in this area where the Galatian churches were formed, these are the Galatian churches. Those Galatian churches had some savage wolves coming in, preaching another gospel. Not the gospel Paul preached or that Barnabas preached. No, preached another gospel, leading them astray, leading them away from the grace of God to a salvation by works, which would only condemn them to hell. By the works of the law, he writes to the Galatians, no flesh 
will be justified in sight. These teachers were coming in teaching that. They needed equipped overseers to watch and see them and to rebuke them and to refute them and to teach the others and, and encourage and build them up in the most holy faith. So they needed these overseers. And then Paul also says to the Ephesian elders, also from among yourselves, men will rise up speaking perverse things to draw away disciples after themselves. They want disciples. And so they want to rise up and they speak things, perverse things, that's things that are not according to sound doctrine and they're leading them away with false teaching. They need these Elders in every church so that they will be built up. You see, this is God's direction. This is God's design. God never designed it for Christians to walk alone. Just to be a Christian out there in the world somewhere, no church, no, no affiliation. Just, he's just going on his own. He's got his own Bible to read. He can take care of himself. That's not the design of the, of the, of God in the Bible. His design is that we come together as a church. And, and Paul goes back and he ordains elders in every church. This is God's design. These elders, Christ has given so that we will be built up in the faith. Turn over to Ephesians for a moment. In Ephesians chapter 4, Speaking of the ascension of Christ, it says in verse 8, When he ascended on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. Uh, and then you skip down to verse 11. And he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of ministry for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come to the unity of faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we should no longer be children tossed to and fro, carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men and the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting, but as speaking the truth in love, may grow up in all things into Him who is the head, Christ from whom the whole body joined and knit together by what every joint supplies according to the effective working by which every part does its share, causing growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. Now, that's a great passage about growing. But if you're a Christian, you're in this passage. He's talking about you and he's talking about me. But where? He's talking about the church. He gave these gifts to the church. He's writing to a church. This is the church in Ephesus. He gave these gifts. Some pastors and teachers, they need to be there. It's a well-ordered, well-functioning church that will help them to grow up in all things under Christ. And then finally, I want you to notice back in our passage in chapter 14 of Acts, it says they commended them in verse 23, in 23b, they commended them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Now, this is so important because here they're exhorting them. They're exhorting them to do certain things and to hold on to the faith and, and, and to continue in the faith. 
But it's really the Lord that's going to keep them. He uses these means, the word of God, the ministry in the church. These things will uh, will help them. They're means that God has used, tools that God uses. But ultimately, it's God who strengthens them. It's ultimately God who causes them to grow. Paul says to the Thessalonians in chapter 1 Thessalonians 5, 24, He who calls you is faithful, who also will do it. He calls you to it, and He's going to do it. Jesus said, you remember, all that the Father has given me shall come to me. And he who comes to me, I will in no wise cast out. But, He says, I will raise him up on the last day. They come to Christ. He keeps them, and on the last day, He presents them to His Father. On the last day, that day of glory, the day of the kingdom of God coming in His fullness, He brings them to that day. Not one of them, He says, is not brought to that place. He keeps them. The keeping power of Christ. So He commends them to the Lord in whom they believed. It wasn't all up to them to hold on. They are to hold on. But God is going to make sure they hold on. God's going to take care of this. Paul says that, that he was persuaded that he is able to keep that which I've committed to him unto that day, that day in which his kingdom comes. Now, as we close, I just want to ask, what would keep Paul going as it did? I mean, he just... They call him like the Energizer Bunny. He just keeps going, keeps going. What kept him going? What would drive him and these others to risk so much, to risk life and limb, to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ? I want you to turn to one more passage, 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Because in that, I've quoted from that already, 2 Corinthians 4. But I want to... Go to this passage because he's talking about these sufferings, these very things that happened to him in Lystra and Iconium and so forth. In chapter 4 of 2 Corinthians, he says, notice in verse 8, we are hard pressed on every side, yet not crushed. We are perplexed, but not in despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body. For we who live are always delivered to death for Jesus' sake, that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So then death is working in us, but life in you. Yes, we're being crushed. We're, we're being beaten down. And he's not acting like this is something fun. He's not denying the reality of it or anything like that. But he says, goes on to say, And since, verse 13, we have the same spirit of faith, according to what is written, I believed and therefore I spoke. We also believed and therefore speak. Knowing that he who raised up the Lord Jesus will also raise us up with Jesus and will present us with you. You notice what he's saying. He's saying, why are we doing this? Why are we going to such trouble? We're crushed and perplexed and beaten down and cast down. Why? We believed, therefore we spoke. In other words, 
we believe this is true. This isn't just some self-help thing that Paul's going around the, the countryside preaching. He's preaching to real sinners who are lost and dying. But he's preaching a message of salvation through the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus who was sent to this earth, who died, who rose again, who ascended to heaven, who's at the right hand of God. We're preaching Him. And that's a message worth dying for. He says in verse 7, we have this treasure in earthen vessels. Earthen vessels, that's Him in His old weak body. Imagine how, how deformed it even was from all of these beatings and the stonings and imprisonments and shipwrecks and all of these things. He had scars all over. He says, I bear in my body the marks of the Lord Jesus. You could look at Paul's body and see what he had suffered for Christ. Is it worth it? We have a treasure. <laughs> we come. They think I, they despise me. They think he's, oh, he talks so big in letters, but look, he's nothing. He's just little. He's nothing. But he has this treasure. And that treasure is the gospel. That treasure is the good news of salvation. That's what they went all over the countryside preaching. All over this continent and that to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what kept him going. That's what makes it worth it all. You know, he is, God has called you, if you're a Christian, to follow him. To deny yourself, pick up your cross and follow him. And the question is always, is it worth it? Is it worth it? I mean, you're asking me to give up this. No, you're asking me to give up everything. When Jesus told the rich young ruler to sell everything he had, give to the poor and come and follow me. He wasn't giving him something less than he was giving up. He was giving him something far more than he gave up. Far more. He had the treasures of this earth which are here today and gone tomorrow. Jesus had the treasure of heaven to give to him. Lasting treasures, solid joys and lasting treasures. That's what he had to give him. And that's what the gospel offers you. And it offers me. It offers us a living treasure, the Lord Jesus himself, to know him to be conformed to Him, to have our sins forgiven, to be adopted into His family, to have an inheritance in heaven waiting for us, to enter that kingdom of heaven and hear Him say, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. That's worth it all. There's an old hymn that says, It will be worth it all when we see Jesus. One glimpse of His dear face, all sorrow will erase. Someone said, well, when I get to heaven, he'll answer all my questions. Why this happened and why that happened. I heard somebody say, no, you won't even want to ask. It will literally pale into insignificance, into nothing. As he said, it's not even the sufferings we experience at this present time are not even worthy to be compared with the glory that will be revealed in us. That's the blessing he offers now, what about you? Where are you in all of this? Are you like those who say, nope, can't be true, don't believe it's true, don't want anything to do with it? Okay. 
Well, you'll have their reward. But their reward, these who drove him out of the city, unless they repented sometime later in their life and turned to Christ, they died in their sins. And they perished forever. But those who believed, and these who went back to it, encouraged them, continue in the faith. Don't give this up. It's a treasure. It's the truth of God. Believe it. Follow it. And never look back. That other hymn, I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. The cross before me, the world behind me. No turning back. That's the Christian. He has a treasure right in front of him. That's what Paul and Barnabas, that's what they were offering. That was the work which God called them to do. To deliver men out of their sins, out of their blindness, out of their wretchedness, out of their darkness into His marvelous light. Have you come to Him? Have you come to Christ? Have you turned to Him? Have you believed on Him? And if you're a Christian and you say, yes, I have, then continue in the faith. Don't give it up. Don't give up one article of your faith. Believe everything to the end. Let's pray. Father in heaven.